Thank you, Sarah. Happy Monday to you. Happy Monday to you. Can you believe three years since it no. was declared a world <laughs> pandemic? Oh, my gosh, no. Yeah. Man, how we've changed, eh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I right. was in college still. You were still in college. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. How was it being covered then in college? Like, this, there would have been a prime teaching time. Yeah, well, I was in communications then, and they were like, hey, everyone go home. <laughs> I uh, Here's a quick story about myself. Mm-hmm. Not that it's about me, Sarah. <laughs> Uh, but like when I was in college, the red light in the newsroom never went off for four years except for once. <laughs> and it was when uh, Magic Johnson announced that he had HIV. And so then I, I'm wondering that like that was a defining moment because mm-hmm. the, where we are now with that disease compared to back then and what we all thought about it now and mm-hmm. how it was covered. Um, it's interesting how the three years have gone by and what we're doing with COVID and where we're heading with it as well. So. I, pr- I would just thought that was a prime when I was in college and that happened, that was a prime teaching time about how we were going to cover this thing and where it was going and mm-hmm. this disease and all that. So absolutely not the same for you though. So never mind. <laughs> no. Thank you, Sarah. See ya. Sarah McCarthy will be back at two and two thirty with your news update. Somebody who does know a lot about it uh, is Jason Kinderchuk, uh, of course, joining us associate professor, Canada research chair, U of M and many other things. Jason, how are you? Uh, I can't believe it's been three years, Jim. Yeah, I can't either. And I did want to ask you because I don't know, like, how are you aware of this? And I would presume it was prior to that March 10th announcement that it's a pandemic. Yeah, it was. It was uh, honestly, it was December 31st of uh, 2019. My better half, uh, the smarter Dr. Kinderchuk and my daughter had fallen asleep before uh, midnight and I happened to be kind of strolling through Twitter and checking updates and there was a story about these you know kind of SARS-like illness uh, cases that had popped up in, in China um, and of course you know I, I think when whenever anybody that deals with emerging viruses hears SARS-like at least prior to, to 2020 you, you get a little bit nervous because I mean SARS SARS coronavirus had disappeared um, so there was this question of oh what's going on uh, and then actually a few weeks later, I was in Nairobi for three weeks. And that was when things really started to kick off. The first European cases hit. Um, I was starting to get a lot of questions in Nairobi, even in my hotel, if I could give some updates on uh, on uh, SARS-CoV-2 and this new virus and what it meant. Um, so it, you know, my world changed, much as everybody's did, uh, very, very rapidly. I would assume so, yeah. And so did you know that it would be like, I mean, it's hard to say, but I would imagine before it was uh, who came out and announced it as a worldwide pandemic, you probably saw this coming, just given your expertise. I think, you know, for for me, initially, when we saw the cases rising in in China, there was some indication pretty quickly, especially once the, you know, kind of the the more draconian measures uh, started to be implemented in Wuhan, that this was a little bit different than what we had seen with SARS. You got the sense that, that there was quite a bit of concern uh, uh, within uh, within China. And then, of course, once the European cases started, and we heard, obviously, about uh, Iran and, and uh, Italy, once that started to kick off, um, uh, you know, I came back from Nairobi very much kind of thinking, okay, um, you know, we, we probably are going to be heading towards somewhat of a shutdown or at least, uh, you know, uh, uh, some disruption in services just based on the way cases were spreading and how little we knew uh, about the disease at that point in time. It, being in the scientific world, are, are you accustomed to not being heard? And, and was that the case in China? Do you still sort of believe that story that uh, somebody wasn't being listened to and, and this is what it cost us? Well, I, I think that there's a part of this. And listen, we, we've been talking about this a lot lately about pandemic preparedness. I, I think people in the field 
have maybe felt some of that for, for a few decades now, but and not so much that we're constantly being blind or, or you know, have having, you know, backs turned towards us, but more that there's, you know, something hits and there's an immediate interest and then that drops off, right? And everybody kind of says, okay, eh, it's not as bad as, as we thought, or, you know, we, we've been able to get through it. Pandemic flu in 2009 is a good example, Ebola in 2014, uh, SARS in 2003, Zika. I mean, you know, we can go on and on about the, the number of kind of warning signals for emerging pathogens we've seen. Um, uh, for me, it's more, uh, an, you know, kind of a, an answer of saying we, we haven't necessarily changed our ways to, to make us more prepared. And that to me is what, what, what's been the most frustrating is that we, we've seen very basic mistakes that, that have hurt us uh, very, very badly in terms of response. And how has that dealt with, Jason? Like, I mean, I, uh, yeah. you know, coming from a sports world, I have facts about some some players and, and I'm, I'm saying something and it's not heard. And then a month later, it's true. And I'm like, I you know, not frustrated, but I'm like, well, this is why I did my research. I can't imagine on a much grander scale, like something that you do and not being heard, how frustrating that would be. It, it gets frustrating, right? I, you know, like certainly for, for Ebola, I mean, I remember very distinctively in 2014 when many of us were kind of looking at that saying, this is going to be bigger than, than what we've seen. You could kind of see that the, the preparedness was not being implemented and that, that kind of international concern uh, what wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't kind of being met. Um, and of course, when it did, it was it was too late. And, and of course, those of us that were there saw that firsthand. Um, this is kind of the same, well, very much the same thing on a much bigger scale, right? Which is, you, you know what inevitably is going to happen. Even if you can get things under control, it takes a while and you're going to see um, certainly uh, underserved communities and, and those that, uh, that have limited resource uh, access or availability, they are going to be the ones that are going to, uh, to, to see the greatest uh, greatest hit from from these types of events. So that part is frustrating because we need to be doing better as a society uh, for uh, for those communities in particular. And I don't want to be over dramatic, but to me, it just read like a movie. Like yeah. there's some scientists screaming that something horrific is coming. Um, they're not being listened to, and I understand that because I, I mean. I'll never probably be a government official, but if I'm a government official and somebody comes to me and says, we need to shut down the economy or we need to do this, my first reaction is, no, we can't do that. Why? What are you talking? Like, so, but it's like a script, right? And then it sort of played out that way, but in real life. You know, I, I hated the movie Contagion when I first saw it. <laughs> and we, we went back to watch it in, you know, I think it was very early in 2020, kind of like March, maybe even uh, April 2020. And, and I stopped it partway through because it was kind of like, yeah, this is getting to be a little bit too close to home, right? Because we already, at that point, we started to see the rise of discussion of, uh, you know, whether this was real, whether it wasn't, you know, different, you know, different kinds of uh, non-approved therapeutics and whether they'd be beneficial. We started to see that misinformation chain starting, and you could kind of get the sense that, oh, this is, this is going to be different. It's going to push um, a lot of buttons for a lot of different groups, and I don't think we're ready to deal with that. And I think we're still struggling with it, even with monkeypox virus now. I mean, we're, you know, that, that aspect of, you know, how to communicate, how to not stigmatize, how to be able to provide information, how to do that in, in a period when people are burnt out from an ongoing pandemic. You know, like, we have to appreciate the last few years has not been just COVID, right? It's been COVID and monkeypox virus and Sudan virus in Uganda and Marburg virus now in Equatorial Guinea and H5N1 floating around and all these other things. Like, it's it gets to be very, very difficult to try and wrap your head around and and kind of continue to rationalize um, what is going on, how we're going to get through this, and what this means for afterwards. 
uh, after three years, are we still calling it a pandemic? Is it still a pandemic? Where are we? Yeah, I, I think we're still there, right? I mean, certainly we, we haven't seen any shift for uh, for, for WHO or, uh, or or USCDC or, or beyond at, at changing that. So we still have, uh, you know, uh, you know, uncontained uh, spread and transmission in, in many areas of the globe, but still having, you know, uh, health impacts. Certainly those have been lessened from what they were uh, even a year prior to uh, to, to now. Um but, but there are ongoing concerns. So I think until uh, we're, we're at a state where we have more control, you're probably still going to see this fall into that emergency category. But we have to appreciate it. We're also in a different place than, than we have been previously. So small gains, but we're, we're not quite at, uh, at the fourth quarter yet. And what do we do around COVID now? Like, I'm wondering where we're going, but also I'm wondering, you know, next week, somebody listening tests positive and, and, yeah. and what the sort of parameters are about what we should do. So, you know, I think a lot of this for, and from a very personal standpoint, Jim, is just, you know, just a, a virologist that kind of yeah. dabbles in all this stuff. I, you know, my view on this right now is, well, so we're, we're, we, we're not going to get this contained, okay? So the, the idea of, you know, can we identify all cases and, and get transmission down to zero, that's not going to happen. Um, but what we can do is try and lessen the impact. And that still gets back to the idea of same thing we've been doing for influenza and RSV and other respiratory viruses is, listen, if you're sick, stay home. Um, we should have been doing this prior to, to COVID. We certainly should be doing it moving forward. That is our best bet at trying to reduce impact. And then, of course, it's the layered approach of vaccination plus masking if you're sick, plus reduction in contacts, um, you know, plus in, you know, ensuring that uh, you know, if you need to get tested, that you're able to get access to those testing, uh, to, to that testing capacity. It's, it's all those different things together. Right. And I appreciate you speaking personally as well, because that's one of the reasons I love having you on. You have your science, you have your background, you're not trying to push anything on anybody. And then you also speak about what you you would do yourself. So I really appreciate your insight on all those angles, Jason. Well, a final one for you is I'm still wondering myself just about kids, like two-year-old, four-year-old, six-year-old. Uh, what, what, what should we be doing with our kids right now who may or may not be vaccinated when it comes to COVID? Yeah, we, we just dealt with it again this weekend, right? We've had our daughter's been to three birthday parties of the past month, and I think two out of three have ended with her, you know, vomiting her guts out at the end of the day. Oh, no. Uh, you know, which is, it's unfortunate, but this is, this is the world we live in, right? And, and, and I think there's, you know, there's certainly been, you know, we've seen increases in infectious disease. We've seen kids getting, uh, getting sick uh, more frequently than maybe we've seen in the past, but that's also because, you know, a, a lot of other factors. Um, for, for COVID right now, we've got vaccines. If kids can get vaccinated, they should get vaccinated. But we need to appreciate that it's COVID plus the other things that, that are rolling through uh, our community. So to me, a big thing is, listen, if, if your kids are sick, um, please try and keep them at home. I mean, one of the biggest things we need to do is reduce transmission through, through all communities. And, and certainly, you know, for us, we've, we've seen, you know, one kid will get sick. And, you know, within four or five days, suddenly it's, you know, the entire classroom that has things rolling through. And, of course, that can get passed on to, to others that are, are vulnerable in, uh, in the community or in the household. So uh, we, we've got to be thinking about the strategy of how we do this for infectious diseases generally. Yeah, that's that's great advice, too. I used to think that daycare or, or school was an urban myth when it came to kids and germs. And, and then I had oh, a child okay. and I'm like, that that's the, <laughs> the furthest from an urban myth I've ever heard. So I understand now for all my friends over the years who used to tell me uh, I get it. Jason, this has been really insightful, as always. Thanks for sharing this, and, and thanks for going back over the three years and, and where we're heading as well. I appreciate it. 
Always uh, fun to be on here, Jim. Thank you. Great stuff. Jason Kinderchuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair, with some thoughts there on three years. And again, on March 10th, did you think about it? Did you go back three years and and where we are now and how we thought of it back then? Also, uh, as we go back uh, over the three years and where we are today. Angela Torgensen, General Manager, McNally Robinson, uh, bookseller, joins us now. And we're going to talk about the big win for Women Talking in the uh, Oscars last night. And, of course, it's based on the book by author Miriam Taves. Uh, good afternoon, Margaret. How are, or Angela, sorry. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm great, Jim. Thanks so much for talking with me. No, thanks for coming on. And I gave it away because I am going to run a Margaret Atwood clip in a, a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes after this discussion, too. But tell <laughs> us about Women Talking and um, prior to the movie, uh, the book itself and how well it sold or how popular it was. The book has been enormously popular. Um, we are huge Miriam Taves fans. Uh, she is actually a former McNally Robinson employee. And so we get really excited whenever there's a new book by Miriam. But this one in particular um, was really a big departure for her. It's based on a true story out of Bolivia. And it's just, it's so moving. The book has been enormously popular and the movie was fantastic. Yeah, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I'm going to, of course, and, and was trying to head it on the list when it was nominated. Um, you said the book has been so, first of all, she used to work for you. Many, many, many years ago, she worked at one of our locations, yeah. That's an inspiring story. That's great. Well, let's get into it. How was she as an employee? Well, this was long before my time, unfortunately. <laughs> but I would assume <laughs> so, yes. Depending on. Um, but, but, yeah, she is remembered very, very fondly, and we've had her back for multiple events over the years with each successive book. So watching her succeed has been really inspiring. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and it's just such a great story for her, but also for, for Winnipeg and Manitoba and, and the whole province as well. Um, but when you say the book was successful prior to the screenplay and, and, and the movie itself and then the Oscar win, um, define popular. Like it was a well-read book here in Manitoba or Canada or North America? It was a best-selling book in Canada, for sure. We, when it was in hardcover uh, copies, sold well over 2,000 copies of the book um, to date. And, yeah, she she really has strong national and international appeal now. She's got a great readership. That's and it's a, well-deserved. Yeah, that's outstanding. Um, how well will it sell now that there's been a, a movie, but also an Oscar win? We saw a big, big uptick in sales when the movie was first announced and then when it came out, and it hasn't shown any signs of slowing down. So I think now that Sarah Pauly's adaptation has won an Oscar, um, I think it'll continue to go from strength to strength. There's a lot of interest and excitement around that. And and how does that um, historically work? Because I can understand that, how people would come in, and, and we've always heard this, before you watch this movie, read the book, or if you read the book, you've got to see the movie. Um, how does that play historically part and parcel when something like this happens? If a movie is If a movie is that anticipated, it really does increase sales of the book. It brings a lot of interest sometimes to books that are a little under the radar. Um, Women Talking was not one of them uh, because we had featured it and promoted it, and it had been featured and promoted across the country and through North America. But historically, it really does drive sales if a book is picked up for a major a major movie or, or TV series, especially with Netflix and things like that now. Well, and that's great for Miriam Taves, of course, as the author. And I, I was wondering about that because I had heard about the book long before the movie was ever filmed. Um, because of its popularity just from from people in the province. 
Um, so that's good to see that it'll get sort of, I don't know if rejuvenated is the right word because it was already pretty successful, but this is, can I equate it to like when somebody has a hit song and then a decade later or, or sometime later, somebody remakes a song and it's just as popular? Absolutely. Absolutely. Or if a song is featured on a, you know, a, a popular TV show or movie, you right. see that uh, all of a sudden, like, like with Kate Bush, you see an increased uh, interest from a different readership or a different listening group. Right. Now, the other great thing about McNally, uh, McNally Robinson is um, you've got a great sense of humor. And so I saw this on social media last week and was was thinking of reaching out. And I thought, well, we'll wait till see how the the Oscar uh, book for Women Talking does. But I want to play this clip. Margaret Atwood, the great Canadian author, was on uh, the Seth Meyers show last week. And, and this is the discussion that took place. And then we'll get into how McNally Robinson jumped on board with the fun. Uh, over 50 books, you're incredibly well-known, but I do enjoy hearing stories uh, like this because, uh, you know, it reminds us all to be humble. Is it true that you had a book signing once um, where no one showed up? Oh, it was so humiliating. Oh, yeah, so it was in a mall Okay. in Winnipeg on a Tuesday afternoon. Okay. Nobody was in the mall, and certainly nobody was in the bookstore. And there I sat with my little book, my little table, and outside in the, in the mall hallway, as it were, I saw this guy coming, plonk, 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 plonk. And I thought, here comes my customer. <laughs> he opens the door, he comes up to me, plonk, 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 plonk. And he says, where's the scotch tape? <laughs> <laughs> and I say, <laughs> I think it's at the back. He says, thanks. That was it. <laughs> that was it? Yeah. That was the entirety of it? That was well, it. Well, I mean, they say there's a rule in publishing. Never do a book signing in a Winnipeg mall on a Tuesday. <laughs> so obviously a great story there, but uh, McNally Robinson weighed in on social media and said particularly great the last time she was at her store, she did a book signing in a Winnipeg mall on a Wednesday, and she clearly learned a valuable lesson. Uh, do you remember that, that story she told and maybe the, the next book follow, uh, signing Margaret Atwood had? So Margaret has told this story for many, many, many years. So we've heard it from her many times. The interesting thing is people always assume that it's us she's talking about because we have big bookstores and malls. Uh, but it was actually in Eaton's. Okay. It was back when Eaton's had the uh, book sections in their stores. And so people always assume it was us. But we, she was here the day we opened our doors at this store at Grant Park Mall. And the store was packed. I think we violated a number of fire codes. So, it, <laughs> so it, yeah, we, we find it hysterical, but it, it was definitely not us. Well, and not just not you, but that's what I was wondering about the story, because I can't imagine it even happening in the past decade where that would happen with Margaret Atwood. No, that was 25 years ago that she was here to open the store, 26 years ago now. And, uh, and we've never not had a massive attendance for her. So I think that must have been really early days. Right. So it wasn't McNally, but still a, a funny story. And I like the way you weighed in and had some fun with it, because when you did have her there on a Wednesday, it was very uh, much attended for sure. So a great sense of humor there, but also uh, just a good Winnipeg story. I think that's a good part of us laughing at ourselves and being able to enjoy it like McNally Robinson did on, on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great Winnipeg story, and some of the comments were hysterical. We, we had a good time with that. Does McNally have women's talking in stock right now? We have so many. Yes, we have scads and scads. So Grand Park Mall, McNally Robinson can come down and grab the book after the Oscar win on Sunday. I really appreciate this, Angela. Anything else that's going on with McNally you'd like to promote? Uh, you know what? We've got a full slate of events for lots of local Canadian, lo- local and Canadian authors coming up this spring. So just go to our website at www.mcnallyrobinson.com. 
We've got great restaurants, a great restaurant. We've got a great store at the Forks, and we're always doing something exciting. And you do have Scotch tape, right? Because I've been there. We don't. We don't. Oh, you don't. <laughs> we have oh. some on our desk. Well, we I would happily lend Margaret out with them. But that's what I meant. Not for sale, but I did. I remember last time I was there. I think it was when Doug Gilmore was in town and had a book signed. That was years ago. I've been there since, but I remember seeing Scotch tape there because I used something to tape something up for him. That was a lot of fun, that event. I remember Doug being here, too, with yeah. great fondness. And that was very well attended, as always. Well, I really appreciate it, Angela. Thanks for this, and uh, continued success with everything McNally Robinson has going on. Thanks so much. You have a great day. I really appreciate it.